we are starting a new series, and we called the series Why God Why. I'll kind of give you the, the background of that series in a minute. The graphic is really cool. The reason I like the graphic is because it's made up of like a thousand words like cancer and loss of loved ones and uh, financial difficulty and just tons of words that kind of oftentimes describe the scenarios in our life where we ask the question. We ask that question, why God why? And oftentimes what people are asking when they ask that question is this very common question, which is why do bad things happen to good people? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that question before or you've asked that question before, right? Why do bad things happen to good people, right? Well, we can't answer that in a simple little 30-minute message. You know, well, I never talk 30 minutes anyway, but anyway, we can't answer that in a you know, quick little message. We're going to break that down over the course of this series, but I'm going to give you this. This is a great quote. If you ever get asked that question, this is a good one to just put in your hat. This is one for you, okay? This is a quote from R.C. Sproul, how he answered it. Why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened once and he volunteered, right? That only happened once and he volunteered. Now, that is super not helpful to anyone, just by the way, okay? So I'm only saying you can have this for yourself. It's a theologically correct answer, uh, but you know, that's just for you, all right? Really, we're going to start with just the basic concept of why do bad things happen, right? The, the thing that we all get, I mean, this is when you kind of strip the Christian religion and the facade away, and we all get really real with the questions we ask, like, you know, why is it that, that you know, I just heard this story of someone who'd been praying, and, and, and their, you know, their wife was healed uh, from cancer, uh, but why is it that all the prayers of my family, my mom died? Like, why? Why, why God, why? Right? Why is it that it's after all the counseling and after all the, the work and after all the things we've gone through, why is our marriage continuing to get worse and not better, right? Why is it that the, that the doctor doesn't still know what's going on with me, right? I've, I've been through so many tests. I've been through so many things. Why is it that I still don't have anything definitive that I know I can do to remedy what's physically happening? Why is it that after, you know, several job interviews and several months of being out of work? Am I continuing to wake up the next day with no idea how provision's going to come? These are the questions. And again, these are the questions that you have. This is not, uh, this is not a, um, uh, you know, uh, this is not a time to try to compare whose suffering is worse than another. I'm just talking about just standard questions that would cause you to ask, why God, why? And so today we start with just what I'm going to call a theology of suffering, okay? It's a theology, meaning it's a study in terms of, uh, of a divine study of God, and how does God view suffering, and how do we see God in suffering and through suffering? So that's the way we're going to look at it today. I love this verse from 2 Corinthians. It just, it, it, it really kind of highlights why I feel like this series is important, and the overall goal of the series. This is 2 Corinthians. This is Paul, who says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God our merciful Father, and the source of all comfort. And he goes on to say that he comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. Then they are, when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. The purpose of this series, the goal of this series is for you because you may be struggling. You may be going through a valley we're going to talk about. You may be going through your own valley right now personally, and this message, this series is for you, for you to experience understanding, for you to get some tools and some help, and for you to experience some healing. 
This series is also for you because there's not a single person in this room that suffering will not touch your life, whether it's your family members, kids, parents, siblings, people at work, close friends. Everybody's going to have people in their life, and, and sometimes it's very difficult to minister to them. Sometimes it's very difficult to know the right thing to say, and we want to help you as you comfort others, not just the comfort that you, get, you yourself are going to receive, but as you comfort others. I wish I could give you, uh, all, I wish if this was a written uh, book or pamphlet, uh, I'd have all the opportunities to put all the little footnotes in and all that of where some of this information comes from. I can't do that as a spoken sermon. So I'm just going to go ahead and share some resources with you. These are things over my life uh, that I've received and some of this personal experience, but uh, a lot of what we're going to share today comes from several resources. Tim Keller is a pastor in um, the Redeemer Church in New York. He has written a lot about suffering, and, I, and I've read a, a lot from him and heard him a lot address suffering, and so he's a great person uh, to go look at. Here's a couple books. This one is by Wayne Cordero called Sifted, and this is a great personal story of how God kind of walked him through uh, some sifting and some trials and some tribulations of his own. This is a fairly new book by Craig Rochelle, a pastor in Oklahoma, called Hope in the Dark, and he actually wrote this for someone on his staff who had gone through a miscarriage, and, and then now currently he kind of published it because his daughter is actually going through some health problems, and the words he actually wrote for somebody else were so powerful that they came back to him, so then he decided to share that with everybody else. So a lot of what you're going to hear in the next few weeks come from this, you know, this big variety uh, of resources. So if you ever want to know some resources, uh, I can help you out with that, okay? Now, it's hard to talk about a theology of, su of suffering in some sort of summary statement, but I tried, okay? But I tried. I'm going to read to you this very, uh, very run-on sentence, uh, not grammatically correct question, okay? Question and answer that brings us all on the same page of where we're starting when it comes to what is a theology of suffering, all right? Now, you may not agree with it. I'm not telling you you have to agree with it. I just want us all to be on the same page as to where we're starting as to how we're going to answer this question of why, God, why. So here it is. You guys ready? I'm going to read it out loud. It'll say, can God be, because it's a question, can God be a good, good father who is all-powerful and able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine? Merciful and sovereign over all things, who loves us so much that he sacrificed his only son for us and our sins, and yet fully experience hatred and abuse, unjust persecution, financial ruin, fatal diseases, depression and mental illness, devastating consequences of personal sin, irreparable chronic pain, loneliness and despair, violence and death and still be in the center of God's perfect will? Everybody get the whole question there? Guess what the answer is? Yes. Again, you don't have to agree with it, but this is the idea. This is the summary of what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks of can God really be who we believe he is, who he says he is, what we've heard he is, what we believe, what we've come to believe about him, and yet fully experience some of the most negative things and, and, and devastating things in your life that you could ever experience, and notice all the churchy words I put in there for those that are raised in church, right? And still be in the center of God's perfect will? Yes. And that is, that's going to be our approach 
to understanding this theology of suffering. Jesus said it this way. Jesus himself said it this way in John 16. He said here, well, as a matter of fact, let's read all this together. Let's get involved, okay? Let's read the, 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 the yellow letters together, all right? Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Oh, that's good. Let's do it one more time. Not everybody's with me, okay? Let's start it again. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. See those two big ideas being just in that one verse? This is what Jesus said. This is red letters, people. I know it's yellow on the screen, but it's red letters, right? This is, this, these are the two big ideas at work and at play. And what we notice throughout all of Scripture, and this is stuff we're going to talk about over the next several weeks, you notice that you know, at the very beginning in Genesis, there's a curse. There's a curse on humanity. There's a curse on the world itself. There's a curse on nature that we all experience. And suffering is birthed from that curse. We'll talk about more in depth of that in a few weeks. And then we see it recorded, okay? We see it recorded in story after story after story in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. We see it through our own historical records of of the early church all the way up to now. We see it recorded that suffering exists among God's people and it's going to happen and it's just a part of life. Again, we are promised by Jesus himself that in this life, on this earth, we are going to have many trials and sorrows. And even with all of that, we still ask, what? Yeah, we still ask why, don't we? Even in all of that, we still ask why. And here's what I want you to hear today. It's okay. Asking why is a very natural thing. And it comes from someplace very natural in terms of the nature of how God uses uh, just the, the circumstances of our life, how he uses different things to help us continue to grow. But there's a place that comes when what we believe about God and what we see happening and experience in our life doesn't seem to align and doesn't match up. And it's a natural thing to ask, why? Why, God? Why? I want to just do a little bit of teaching this morning just to give you some visual. Okay, this is some visual um, of just kind of the process of where the question comes from. And then we're going to look back at it today as we talk about a specific spot um, that we're going to focus on today in terms of where the question comes from. Why do we ask why? All right. Now, for most of us, um, depending on when we came to Christ, for most of us, we all had what I call kind of a, a, a mountaintop experience in our early part of our faith right? Early part of our faith, like we're on fire. Everything is speaking to us. Every message is just what I needed to hear. Every worship song, we're crying, you know. Uh, you know, our kids are just experiencing massive transformation. I, you know, I'm growing in my faith. There's just a time in our life, early on especially, when these things are happening, and it's kind of like a mountaintop, right? It's a kind of a mountaintop experience. And then something might happen, whether it's emotionally, spiritually, physically, something will happen happen where we take a turn. You know, we take a turn, and in that turn, I kind of I use a, a big area here, but in that turn, we will eventually come across what I call a crisis of belief. We will come into a crisis of belief when, again, what we believe does not match what we're currently experiencing. And lots of things can happen from a crisis of belief, but two major things often happen for most people is that they often will retreat and pretend they're still on the mountaintop. This is where a lot of cliche Christianity comes from. Y'all know what I'm talking about, cliche Christianity? What doesn't kill me makes me stronger, right? right? When God closes a door, he opens a what? A window, right? 
What also also happens in this, if you're not denying it, is that a lot of people will not even make it through the crisis of belief. They will immediately abandon their faith. Because what they believed about God or what they were told about God or even some of the things they felt when when they said they believed in God doesn't align with anything that's happening in their life and they just simply can't get past it and they cannot reconcile. And so they will abandon their faith. They will abandon their walk. Now, for those who endure, for those who persevere, for those, as we're going to talk about today, that can get through this crisis of belief moment, there are oftentimes, right, let me get a little fat here, there are oftentimes is a turn, right? There's a turn. That doesn't mean circumstances change. Everybody nod your head if you're with me, right? Doesn't mean circumstances change, just means that there's a turn. There's a, there's a turning point in our perspective and our understanding. And then we begin to see what we couldn't see before. We begin to experience some things, and then we find ourselves eventually at another mountaintop. Now, this is what we in the Christian church call growing, right? This is the process of growing. Now, the problem is is that everybody wants to grow in their faith, but the stories that we tell and the things that we tend to celebrate are not often the way this kind of works. What we usually see, and this is what we usually pray for, everybody be honest if you pray for this, what we see happen when people grow is they want to go from mountaintop to mountaintop, right? So they want God to build a bridge, and they want to grow this way. Here I am, I'm Donnie with the little stick figures, look at that, going across my bridge, don't have to learn anything the hard way, Jesus just takes me right over from one mountaintop to another. Now you know what's great? That actually does happen, right? That actually does happen in our growth. We actually can experience incredible favor in terms of just learning something and getting deeper and growing closer with God and continuing to go from, from amazing experience to amazing experience spiritually, physically, you know, emotionally. We can see bridges in our, in our life in terms of growing in our faith. Problem is, is that when we see this, we all just want that only to happen that that's really the way that growth happens. That's really the way I want it to happen. That's the way that everybody wants it to happen. The problem is is that we then don't have a very good understanding of how this works. This is because we don't want any of this to really happen. And the problem is with ignoring this is that we lose what is needed, which is a good biblical theology of suffering. And we have to figure out how to get through that, that, that crisis of belief and learn how to make those turns and understand how we grow in the midst of suffering if we're going to take a great deal of our life, a great portion of our life that's going to happen here, and yet God still wants to grow us. He still wants to draw us close. He still wants us to mature in Him. And again, we, this is what we tend to teach more. This is how we inspire people. This is tend to be the unwritten thing that most people want to have. But then what happens when we start reading scripture and, you know, it's not, it's not glory to glory. You know, it's not, it's not high mountaintop to mountaintop. It's, you know, Old Testament and new. It's a constant conversation about what God's doing in the valley, what God's doing through the trial. I'll give you just a couple examples. Here's a couple examples. This one's in, uh, in Romans. 
It says we can rejoice, right? We hit this crisis of belief. We can rejoice too when we run into, read the words, problems and trials when we know that they help us develop endurance, right? And we make the turn because endurance develops the strength of character and character strengthens confident hope of salvation. And this hope, this hope, guys, will not lead to disappointment. You get to James, James 1, where James 1 says, you know, we hit that Christ to believe. We said, hey, dear brothers and sisters, when, what's the word? Troubles of any time come your way. Consider an opportunity, what? For great joy, not happiness. Everybody hear those words, right? Consider an opportunity for joy. For you know that when your faith is tested and your endurance has a chance to, what's the word? Grow. Let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We need, we, we, that's you and me, we, right? We need a biblical theology of suffering. So not just so that we can experience the time that bridges are made and that we just continue to grow and it's up and to the right all the time. We need it because we are all going to consistently, no matter how long you live, you are going to face several times in your life where you're going to have these crisis of belief moments. And you're going to ask, why, God, why? And I want you to know what's happening in that moment. And I want you to, to remember how you can have a strong theology of suffering and still continue to grow and mature in your faith, even if the circumstances don't change. The, the biblical example we're going to look at today is a man named Habakkuk, okay? So there's a guy named Habakkuk. He's an Old Testament minor prophet. I don't know why they called him minor prophets. This just has to do with their letter and their record is smaller than the major prophets, right? So he's a minor prophet. He lived in a very unique time in the, in the time of the Jewish people and time of God's people. Um, what's unique about Habakkuk, number one, just to help, help you understand, most prophets in general, most prophets, they actually spoke to the people of God on behalf of God. They received words from God to speak to the people of God. Habakkuk is very unique. The Habakkuk's record that we have of his life in terms of this book, we actually see that he engages in a conversation with God for the people. For the people of God. So what's unique about Habakkuk is that, you know, he, instead of this kind of like to the people uh, from God, he's actually having a kind of a recorded conversation with God for and on behalf of the people. And we're going to learn from Habakkuk himself how it is that he manages this theology of suffering. Here it is in Habakkuk 1. This is where he starts off with he start really, we're, we're kind of jumping right into the crisis of belief moment that, that Habakkuk is having. He says, how long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight, 2019. The law has become paralyzed. And there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, so the justice has become perverted. I think if this is, if you don't, if this is his crime. This is where what he knows is true about God, what he believes is true about God, is not what he is seeing. It's not what he's experiencing personally. And yet, this is amazing. God responds to Habakkuk in this crisis of belief. He responds to him. And here's the beginning of his response. He says, 
The Lord replied, look around all the nations, look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. And man, this is, this is a great moment, right? If we were writing Habakkuk's story, this is a great moment where we're like, that's exactly right. Something's going to happen. God's going to come in like a mighty, something about the horse and, and blades and all sorts of stuff. And he's going to just trample the, you know, all the bad people and the good people are going to be saved. And that's what it feels like when he responds. It kind of feels that sense of, man, you're going to not, be, you wouldn't be able to believe it if someone told you what I'm getting ready to do. The problem is, as you continue to read Habakkuk, he actually says, it's going to get worse. I'm actually quite thankful that God does not respond to me often and tell me it's going to get worse. But Habakkuk did. He goes on to tell Habakkuk that, hey, I'm raising up the Babylonians. I'm raising up the Babylonians. They are a heathen, ruthless, vicious people like locusts who just wipe out the land. And if you know anything historically about the Babylonians, that's exactly who they were. And he tells Habakkuk, no, 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 this isn't what you think it's going to be. It's actually going to get much, much, much worse before it gets better. And I I don't know about you, but this goes back to that crisis of belief where we really, really struggle. Now, if God came to us often and said, it's going to get worse before it gets better, I don't know how many more people would simply just take the off-ramp. They'd just take the off-ramp. They wouldn't even bother trying to process or or work through the suffering that God had planned. But I want you to see, this is the, we're going to come back to Habakkuk's story, but I want to stop here for a moment again, because this is, today this is the big, the big kicker, like why we ask why is because of this moment right here, and many of us just can't get past this moment. We can't. And what often, this is again, this is what often happens. What often happens in a crisis of belief moment is we create and I, I put two words together. We create basically a binary dilemma, okay? We create a binary dilemma, okay? Sometimes we can call it a false dilemma, and that's still true. The binary comes in because we usually, when we get to this place of a crisis of belief, and we're, we don't, God, we think one thing about God, but we're seeing something else. We come at God basically with two distinct options, and that's it. We respond to God mostly with this binary dilemma of, okay, okay, God, that means you're either good or you're not, right? God, you're either just or you are completely unfair. God, you're either loving and you're going to step in and do something, or God, you're apathetic and you don't even care what's going on. God, either you're all-powerful or maybe you can't do anything about what's going on in my life. We come to God with these, these two just distinct, these binary options because we are so struggling in that moment to ask why. We just go, God, it's either one or the other. Like, just tell me what it is. You're either good or you're not. You're either present with me or you are absent You're either alive and well and on the throne, or there is no God. And then, if you were raised in church, if you were raised in church, a church culture, then you stack on top of our binary dilemma, you stack on the church language that says, you know what, maybe you don't have enough faith, right? Maybe God's just trying to 
test you and test your faith. If you were raised in the Baptist tradition like I was, you sort of were raised with the unwritten rule that when you began to experience suffering and, and, and some issues in your life that you really couldn't put a finger on why they were happening, probably you did something wrong, right? Oh, come on, I'm not the only Baptist in the room. I know that's true. You probably did something wrong. There's probably a secret sin in your life, you know? There's, there's something that you didn't do. Or just the fact that you start to ask questions or just the fact that you are wrestling with, with, you know, with the, the conflict and the tension already means that you are doubting God, which is why he's responded to you and you're going through the trouble you're going through. So not only do we create this dilemma where we're only giving two options, but then we add on a church culture that says, well, maybe it's your problem because we can't blame God. We want to. So we blame us. We blame something we're doing. And then I love the fact that sometimes we like to play God. Sometimes we like to play God. Because listen, guys, no one knows how this would glorify God better than how we believe it would glorify God, right? So why in the world would, would they die from cancer? No, 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 no. Right about here in this little crisis of belief, God's going to come in and he's going to build that bridge, you know, and he's going to save, he's going to have this miraculous, oh, the tumor's gone, you know, and, and they're going to write a post and a book and put a movie out, you know, with bad actors. I don't know. They're, they're, they're going to do something to show everybody, you know, how great God is. Hey, why in the world, God, would you let that missionary family who served you for 20 years overseas, why would you let the story be that they get decapitated and ruthlessly murdered for their faith after 20 years of service? No, God, it would be so much better if you were to swoop in right before, the, you know, right before it happened and miraculously save them, and then they could come on furlough to the States and just tell everybody all about the miraculous saving of their God. You know, instead of, instead of the marriage ending because of an affair, God, it'd be so much better if, you know, even after the adultery, that God, you would just do something and then they could just, you know, we could just tell everybody, we could start marriage classes and tell everybody about how great God helped us through this issue. We barely had any struggle at all. And we like to play God because we, we believe, we think we know where we are best of use to God because we don't want to go through the valley. I mean, that's just natural. And so in these crisis of belief moments, we create these binary dilemmas. We, we stack on the guilt of church culture, and we decide we want to play God because we think we know better about how we can be used. I love this quote from uh, Oswald Chambers. It's from one of his devotions, and he says, um, I'll just read it to you. It's not on the screen. It says, Jesus never measured his life by how or where he was the greatest use to God. God chooses to place his saints where they will bring the, him the most glory, and we are totally capable of judging where that may be. We just are. We can't be God. And yet, if you can make it through this crisis of belief moment, there's something powerful that God can do through the suffering, through that valley. And the key is just in the the key is really amazing. It's in the, even in the name of Habakkuk. Now, in, in, in the Old Testament, especially in the Hebrew language, a lot of names meant something very important in terms of what their name meant. And if you look to see what Habakkuk, if you look it up right now, Habakkuk actually means to embrace and to wrestle. And man, I couldn't think of two better words is embrace 
and wrestle. I told one of the guys in the, in the space this morning that's going through some, some, just continues to go through valley after valley, and I just told him, I just told him this morning, it's probably a horrible idea, but I was like, you need to get two tattoos on your arm, one that says embrace and one that says wrestle, because he's living that life right now. And this is how Habakkuk gets through his crisis of belief and then walks through the valley. I want you to see this initial response. After God tells him it's going to get worse before it gets better, here's Habakkuk's initial response. I want you to see this. He says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal. He is embracing what he knows is true about God. Surely you don't plan to wipe us out. That's a wrestle statement. He says, O Lord, our rock, again, very much embracing who God is. He says, you sent these Babylonians to correct us and to punish our many sins, wrestle. But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. That's, a, that's an embrace sentence. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they wrestle? This is, this is how Habakkuk works through the crisis of belief. As he understands the value of, of again, wrestling, embracing what he knows is true about God, and still being okay to wrestle. Again, let me just let me help you understand. This is not a message. Just hear me clearly. This is not a message of how to build more bridges and, get, and not be in valleys as much, okay? And this is not a message about circumstances. I don't have any idea what's going to happen in your circumstances. This is about your growth. This is about your perspective and your faith making a turn. This isn't your, listen, you could forever, and I, this is not where the message gets even better. Listen, you could forever, you could forever have to live through the consequences of your sin choices and never get reprieve from it. You could have to suffer through chronic pain that someone else's choices caused and you were just the victim of for the rest of your life. I'm not saying that the circumstances will change. This is about how do you understand suffering? How do you, what is your theology of suffering, especially when it comes to that initial crisis of belief? How do you respond? And we see here in Habakkuk's story, in Habakkuk's life, that he really lived up to his name. He, he responds with embracing what he knows is true about God. Never really ever moving away from what he knows is true, but he also is okay to ask questions. He was okay to approach God humbly with all the raw, hard questions that sometimes we kind of want to skip around and bringing those to God and saying, surely you're not going to wipe us out. To embrace and to wrestle. Sometimes the only way to get through the valley is to continue to embrace what you know is true about God. But wrestle through the suffering and let God be okay with that. Listen, God did not get angry with Habakkuk's questions. Why? Because he knew how to embrace and he knew that it was okay to wrestle. Oh, we, listen guys, we love, we love to enjoy God on the mountaintop. We really do but we get to know God a whole lot better in the valley. We, 
we, we love to brag on God. Brag on God on all the things that he's done. We love to brag on God on the mountaintops, but nothing draws us closer to him than the valley. When we're up here on the mountaintops, we, we oftentimes praise God, we worship God for what he's done and what he's doing. But here, if we can make it through here and get to here, we get to praise God for who he is. For who he is. And the fact that he, even though we're wrestling, he is still worthy of our praise. He is still worthy of everything we can give back to him. Now, Habakkuk's story doesn't end. I'm just telling you, it's not a sitcom ending. It's not a rom-com, a rom-com you know. And I'll be honest, I, I love, my wife was here in the first service, you can ask her, I love Disney endings. You all with me? Like, I want the bad guy to win, and I mean, it's a good guy to win, and I want the bad guy, no, seriously, I want the good guy to win, and I want the bad guy to realize he's wrong and take a turn for the good, right? That's me. Friggin' Nicholas Sparks and kills all the main characters, and I will never watch another movie of his ever again in my life. Horrible endings, right? That's, again, my preference, right? This is, this is the case. Habakkuk's recorded story does not end with a pretty little bow on top. He goes into the second chapter and says, I'll go to the watchtower and I'll wait to see what God's going to say. And God says, oh, I'll respond. I want you to write it down. And he gives him the five woes. He gives him the five sorrows that are about to hit his people, about to hit mankind before God will come and rescue them. And in the third chapter, Habakkuk responds with a, a prayer. It was actually kind of a worship prayer where he remembers, he just remembers God's faithfulness, and in the process of remembering faithfulness, he's praying that God will still be faithful even through the valley. And here's how it ends. Here's how Habakkuk really kind of ends his, his worship prayer. He says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vine, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty. Yet I will. Just say those words with me, those three words. Yet I will. One more time. Yet I will. Yet I will what? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation, the sovereign Lord is my what? Strength. The sovereign Lord is my strength. I'm going to call the band back up, and we're actually going to close out today with a, with a song and, and, and kind of responding with this attitude. And I know today is a, is a heavy day in terms of where you might be personally, but my challenge to you today, and as we talk over the next several weeks, is you've got to start with your crisis of belief. You've got to start with, with, those, with those honest questions that you have, and you need to be okay with embracing all that you know that God is, and yet being willing to wrestle, being willing to wrestle with what you see and experience that does not align. You've got to make it through that crisis of belief before you're going to make the turn. You've got to make it through. Don't abandon God. Don't give up on God. That's where he says, look, you know, even though all of this is happening, yet I will. That's someone who's made it through that crisis of belief. And sure, we don't, 
listen, I don't know about you, but I don't own a grape farm and there's no cattle in my backyard, you know, and I mean, I don't know what your scenario personally might be, but it might look a little bit more like this for us. That even though my anxiety still affects every area of my life and I can't seem to shake it, yet I will. Even though my marriage seems to be getting worse and not better, yet I will. Even though my doctor says nothing has changed and we're still not sure what it is and what to do, yet I will. Even though I'll wake up again tomorrow without a job and the last three interviews never called back, yet I will. Even though I can't seem to see an end to the physical and emotional pain that I'm walking through, yet I will. We're going to pray and then I'm going to ask you to sing. And even if you don't feel comfortable singing as we stand today, I want you to just say the words. Say the words out loud and let God just bring an agreement to this place in worship. That even though you may not be there yet, you can get there. You can get through that crisis of belief moment and you can begin to make the turn so that you can count it joy. And watch your endurance create character and that character create a hope that will not disappoint. Let's pray together. Father God, we, I don't know in the room today and who's watching online, I don't know what their valley looks like right now. But God, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you are doing a work in their heart. That you are revealing, letting them be honest about the crisis of belief that they've honestly not made it through. Maybe, God, they, they've, they've entertained far too often just abandoning you and abandoning the faith because they don't know if they can make it through this moment. God, I pray this morning that you would just reach into that moment. God, tear apart their binary dilemmas and, and, and help them embrace and still wrestle with you. Help them know you're still present and even though this is, it's not a way to get rid of the, the, the suffering, but God, just to help them make the turn so that they themselves will begin to grow closer to you, draw near to you, trust you even more fully with whatever the outcome may need to look like. God, I pray that no matter what their even though is, even though whatever it is that's unresolved in their life right now, that they will choose, that yet they will praise you. Help us do that today as we respond in your name, Jesus. Amen.